At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. So it, it certainly changes a little bit over time as you get new procurement authorities and things like that. But but a lot of it, at the end of the day, is culture, right? It is how do you, how do you get all these different stakeholders that have to be involved in making a procurement decision or even understanding you know what you can do differently and getting them on board to start taking steps to to go there. And you know where where I sit now, I'm a little bit more focused on the the policy side. Uh, you know, run run the separate trade association called the Alliance. And so they're also right technical changes that can be made and should be made to make, to make things easier. But a lot of it, you know, so much of it is is understanding the existing tools and framework that, that are there um, and how to leverage them effectively and differently to, to get things done. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Since I had Decode CEO Megan Metzger on the show a few years ago, I've been following their growth and it's been really impressive. And it's not just the size of the organization, but more importantly, the impact they're having on the market. Just two years ago, they kicked off a project that I think has really fueled a lot of that growth and its approach has been really unique. And I'm thinking that's partly why it's been so impactful. Because when you think about tech in the federal government, it's not exactly synonymous with a 20 person startup team, but their Alliance for Commercial Technology and Government is hoping to really change that. Through policy advocacy and resource sharing, the Alliance aims to advocate for tech companies looking to break into the federal government space, whether that's the executive or the legislative branch. And my guest today, Nate Ashton, who's the managing policy director at Decode, is also the executive director for the Alliance. And he's going to talk to us a bit about the growth they've experienced and how he's trying to make policy changes easier for startups to get their technologies in front of the federal government. Through advocacy, he really hopes the Alliance can hack through the bureaucracy and the complexities of the government space, especially because many of these existing trade groups don't have the bandwidth. We're also going to talk about some of the policy trends he's seeing right now, what companies should be focused on to drive more meaningful conversations with government leaders. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. So when this podcast began three years ago, the the CEO of Decode was actually on the show, kind of talking about what what you guys are doing, Megan Metzger. And honestly, since I've had Megan on, all you guys have done is continue to grow and continue to make impacts in government, which is which is incredible. And it tells me two things. One, you guys are really good at what you're doing, right? And two, that there is a need for what you guys are doing in government, which I think is incredibly important. So to kick this this conversation off, talk to me a little bit about what you think 
that need really looks like and how you guys have kind of built some connective tissue between the commercial technology space and government. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's there's obviously a very sort of multifaceted uh, level of need when it comes to sort of building those connections and that that sort of pipeline from from the commercial tech space into government. Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, you know, our work at Decode in particular, you know, when I started out at Decode uh, a little over five years ago, right, we were running accelerator programs and and helping uh, solve for for one side of the equation, which is if you're a growing tech company and you're solving problems for a, you know, Fortune 500 corporation, um, whether that's cybersecurity or data analytics or something else, right? The government's probably a customer for you too at some point, right? Uh, also manages big systems, right? Has many of the same problems that any big enterprise has. But there's so much unique complexity around working with the government market that, you know, we, we saw a need to shorten the time to market um, and make it less risky, less complex, right? So we, we started out just solving for that half of the coin, right? And bringing in government to meet with those tech companies, but, but really the focus was how do you make it easier for tech to understand and grow into government as a customer? What we ended up realizing, to, to your point, as we have grown a lot, is that, right, a lot of the folks in our network in, in DC were saying, this is awesome, I love meeting these companies, but I need help too, right? If I'm within government and I see a problem that I want to solve, you know, how do I navigate procurement? How do I convince someone that it's not actually risky to spend a little bit of money trying a new tech solution versus doing things the way we always have? Um, and so that ended up being a, a, a big sort of uh, shift point or growth point for, for us was realizing we need to help solve for the other side of the equation to really make this work. And, and so uh, a lot of what we've grown and doing over the past few years has been educating and advising government leaders, government operators, contracting officers, sort of everyone in, in sort of the life cycle of, of purchasing tech on how do you actually start thinking differently uh, in the sense that, right, there's so many unique barriers that you aren't necessarily taught how to solve for uh, on the government side. So I'd say a big part of it for us is, you know, how do you bring both sides together given you speak a different language uh, and, and there's just a lot of different complex barriers if you get more granular when it comes to, to, to connecting those dots. That to me, honestly, is, is one of the more interesting and unique things that you guys do. I think there's, there's groups out there that help the commercial sector kind of understand government to a degree, right? Maybe not to the extent that you guys do, cause you guys do a really good job, but, um, Fo the focus on the government to me is is really the, if you want to call it that, that piece de resistance, right? And I'm curious to know, what are some of those obstacles that you're constantly engaging some of these government agencies on to help them maybe shorten what that procurement process is or find unique ways to procure some of these emerging technologies that are out there? So it, it certainly changes a little bit over time as you get new procurement authorities and things like that. But, but a lot of it... Um, at the end of the day is, is culture, um, uh, right? It is how do, you, how do you get all these different stakeholders that have to be involved in making a procurement decision or even understanding you know, what you can do differently um, and getting them on board to start taking steps to, to go there. And you know, where, where I sit now, I'm a little bit more focused on the, the policy side. Um, it, it, you know, run, run the separate trade association called the Alliance. And so they're also, right, technical changes that can be made and should be made to make, to make things easier. But a lot of it, you know, so much of it is, is understanding the existing tools and frameworks 
that that are there um, and how to leverage them effectively and differently to, to get things done. Yeah, let's bring up the alliance and the work you're doing there. So um, in 2021, Decode established the Alliance for Commercial Technology and Government, which is really aiming to offer advocacy and resources uh, to increase access, especially for small businesses looking to build government technology. And you're the executive director for for this organization. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Alliance and, and what you're really doing. Yeah, so the Alliance, you know, the the idea for this, I would say, um, has been sort of in, in my mind and other folks' mind for for a long time, which is the the gap that existed in the in the policy conversation when it came to the startup perspective, right? Any big government contractor, right? They've got plenty of lobbyists on staff who are telling the story every day of of um, what they need and how effective they are, et cetera. But there's no startup in their right mind out there that is hiring lobbyists necessarily to to, to do that, right? They're focused on growing their business, engaging with their customers. Um, lobbying is a, a long game and often a nice to have, especially if your focus is not primarily government. Uh, and so that sort of knowledge has been sort of in our minds for a while, right? You know, when you spend this much time sort of in the weeds, um, knocking up against the barriers with folks on both sides, you know, uh, you start to get a better sense of, okay, here are the policy barriers that exist that, that, that we could address. And then back in 2021, the, the sort of catalyst for all this, I would say, is AFWorks in particular had been doing a lot of work, right, through the revamp of the SIPR program to, uh, right, to open it up to more more non-traditional companies, right? Essentially lower the barriers to entry by making the application process easier, putting a, a, a more direct focus on dual use applications and private sector validation um, to get folks in. And so a lot of sort of major changes have been made. And there were a lot of questions coming in from the Hill of what's actually going on here. And there wasn't really an organization outside of AFWorks to tell that story. And so uh, started talking to a fair amount of other stakeholders. And so, right, the Alliance is, is uh, right, Decode played a role in helping get it off the ground. And, uh, uh, but it is independent from Decode. And, and essentially what I ended up doing is getting together about 20 different um, organizations. So some startups, some other um, sort of uh, stakeholders similar to Decode in the industry, uh, some investors and accelerator programs to all sort of chip in a little bit and, and help get this thing off the ground. And, and now we're a fully sort of member-led and, and run organization representing uh, you know, about uh, 50 different uh, startups and organizations across the country. Uh, but, but really, you know, the, the core focus is that it's tell a story that wasn't really being told as much in the past of how do these different policy changes around procurement, around funding, around innovation funds, how do they actually impact startups? And what can we do to make government a better customer, essentially, of, of new technologies? So obviously, in, in your role, you've worked with a lot of different startup organizations. And for me, when I think of a startup organization within public sector, it could be a large company that is just getting into public sector, or it could be a very small company that's getting into public sector, because both might have um, very little knowledge of the public sector. But but for the purpose of what we're talking about, I'm guessing some of the ones you deal with are, are maybe smaller, and you can correct me there. But when you are engaging with them, what are some of the things that you're really working with them on as you're trying to make them a little bit more, if you, if you want to say literate 
in the public sector space and the procurement space um, throughout kind of what they're going to be engaging with? Yeah, so I'd say from the from the alliance perspective, often what um, what it boils down to is right. There's there's so much complexity around the legislative process, around policies, um, uh, that it's almost easier and often better to some extent to ignore 90% of what's going on, um, right? Because it, it, for most startups, right, if you're looking at, you know, what revenue can I bring in in the next six months, right? The legislative process doesn't really matter to you. Um, exactly, yeah. And so being able to pull out where things matter, getting, but, but almost the other way around, getting the feedback in. So a couple of things we're working on, you know, this year, uh, there's a lot of talk around sort of ATO reciprocity and access to cleared facilities and the DOD and different ways to do that. And so um, these are things that will have a positive impact for the sector as a whole, but which no individual startup, you know, should be putting a lot of time or attention to. And so we sort of do the work on the back end to, to make that playing field more level uh, without having to require a lot of, of time and attention versus say what, what we do on what I do on the, on the decode side, which is much more of the um, for government as a customer, how do you think strategically around where you grow, uh, how you grow, how much time to spend, what's the addressable market, how much time do you actually need to, to put into the market before you start seeing returns and then, and then how do you get there and execute on that? That makes sense. I mean, if, I mean, if we st- take a step beyond maybe the the work you're doing at the alliance and and just look at at pure policy around procurement for for a second, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? You mentioned around reciprocity with ATOs. Um, are you talking about being able to leverage ATOs across agencies, or or what what type of um, uh, what type of use cases are you seeing around something like that, or what can we expect maybe coming down from a procurement perspective? Yeah, so I generally, I, I tend to look at, um, you know, when we talk to the members of the Alliance, uh, you know, on a regular basis about what the different challenges are that they face or where they see opportunities um, when it comes to procurement policy writ large. I sort of bucket bucket everything into three broader categories, one being funding, right? Is there money available for the things you want to do? Um, is it easy to get to? Is it, you know, structured in appropriate way? Two being actual procurement regulations, um, right? And that could be everything from, you know, is there a commercial item preference that's actually being enforced? Are they doing research properly? Down to how are you actually structuring the solicitation process? Are um, contracting officers and program managers trained in an effective way to actually buy, buy differently, evaluate software effectively, all those types of things? And then bucket three, which would be compliance, um, right? And so a lot of the regulations are built um, with industry in mind, but the people who traditionally respond to, say, a request for comment on regulations, you know, regulations.gov are folks who are paying attention to government, which is, you know, the more established industry. Um, and so a big part there has been sort of playing playing a role in, in each of those pieces. Um, so to that last part, Right, ATO reciprocity. We were able to get uh, in last year's NDAA some language uh, pushing for ATO reciprocity within the intelligence agencies. Uh, 
the FedRAMP Act was also included, the FedRAMP Authorization Act, mm -hmm. uh, which has some language pushing towards, but not mandating um, right reciprocity for recognition of, of FedRAMP and civilian agencies. Uh, and so there's, right from a startup perspective, this tends to be a pretty big barrier at the early stages, uh, right? Sponsoring an ATO uh, for a, a, a new product uh, is, a, is a bit of a lift. And then if everyone has different requirements, right, it becomes, a, you know, a, an additional burden. And so this comes down to how do we make things more streamlined, more efficient, uh, because the more time that you spend just checking regular, you know, boxes that are slightly different at every agency uh, or every program, uh, the more churn there is that isn't spent solving problems and, and addressing things for customers. So uh this year we're looking at how to how does the iaa from last year get implemented effectively same with the FedRAMP authorization act and then hoping that uh in the next uh ndaa the fy24 that we'll see an expansion of uh that ato reciprocity language as well as some other clauses from the intel community to to dod writ large i want to bring together two two things that you've said in in actually disparate statements one you brought up FedRAMP, which is obviously a, a very major compliance uh, milestone that a company makes, um, especially with the focus on cloud that government has. But you also mentioned earlier around trying to understand ways to maybe lower the barrier of entry to allow some of these maybe emerging tech companies or small businesses to engage with government in a meaningful way. Um, and I'm not, I, I'm not, this isn't a, a, a way for me, a veiled way for me to say FedRAMP should go away. I, I completely agree with having those compliance measures. But the thing that, that I worry about, and we've had, we've had these conversations on the show before, is if there are these really monumental barriers to entry for emerging technology companies to get into government, does that um, basically not allow access or, or not allow government agencies to take advantage of some of these emerging technologies. Is this something that you see regularly in, in either of your roles? And do you think if it is, are there ways that government could go about having these type of compliance measures like FedRAMP and others, um, but still allow for some of these smaller emerging tech companies to engage in a meaningful way the, in the same way that some of these bigger organizations that have more resources can. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we're talking specifically around FedRAMP, right, there's there's a, a, a very high cost burden to FedRAMP compliance, right? A, a company often has to invest as much as a million dollars when all said and done, um, in addition to time, which is often the more the more valuable resource for a for a successful high growth startup. Um, right, engineering resources that could otherwise be be solving other more immediate um, customer needs. Um, right, so there there is absolutely a um, a barrier that that does exist there. That being said, um, there, there's often a for for almost every company that I that I talk to, and a lot of folks in the government too. There's often a little bit of uncertainty about where FedRAMP applies, um, and it's it's always disheartening when you see you know a solicitation come out saying you know applicant must be fed ramped uh when obviously technology could apply uh, could deploy on prem or could deploy in a multi a single tenant cloud or the customer cloud and, and not necessarily have those regulations apply and so i think there's a big education component transparency component uh that's key here uh 
And so the, the more that, that the rules of the road are very, very clear on both sides and understood, which takes takes an investment in training on the government side, uh, in particular, right? A, a company will, will invest resources if they see uh, a market. Is that uh, something you guys are doing at Decode? I know that you mentioned, because I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I've thought this for a while, where I think sometimes it's a it's it's making it easier for government just to throw in must be FedRAMP compliant because it it checks all the boxes and they don't have to have as much concern. But if you take a look at the data load that they're actually securing, it doesn't actually have to be FedRAMP. So I've thought for a long time that there needed to be some type of education on the government side. Is that something you guys are doing? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So we're we're doing I think more more training than we ever expected to do, and I, I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. And you see more more agencies um, investing heavily in that. You see Congress having a big interest in this. The the National Security Commission on on AI a couple of years ago, right? Their big report had a ton in there on on training, right? And so it's not just you know on cybersecurity compliance, but you know we we live in a tech first world today. And to the extent that all of our procurement systems have been primarily unchanged since, you know, before software uh, dominated the world, there's there's a lot to be done in terms of you know changing how we teach stuff. And so you've got you've got a lot of forward leading groups and organizations within government too that are they're also doing trainings and also upskilling. Um, and there's also the you know reality that we have to accept that. Yeah, you can't necessarily train everyone, and, and there are some things that are more complex than others, right? Where you need a specialist who can who can understand the difference when it comes to like things like code quality or or, or how to you know validate the you know how different software systems work and, and the outcomes. And so, uh, some of it will have to be more focused on where do you direct the right types of procurement to really sharp experts within government, um, and then some of it is where where do we push out training. Not just on, and this is where we spend a lot of our time. It's like it's not just on the regulations, right? You can teach every single, you, you can send everyone a slide deck on how OTAs work, but unless you're actually having some conversations where you're engaging them with end users and understanding how this applies to their day to day and and thinking about risk differently, uh, then you know the, the regulation itself can only go so far unless you have some hands on engagement. So I think there's. There's been a, a big uptick in in different types of training that folks have been doing over the past couple of years, and I expect that to continue. Well, and I also think too. I mean, you mentioned sending somebody a slide deck around how OTAs work, but I think there's a level of experience that really gets involved, right? I always joke around that you really don't understand the FedRAMP process until you've gone through it and you have all the the scrapes and bruises and scars to say, "Hey, I've gone through this process," because it's not an easy one. Um, it's important, but it's certainly not an easy one. Um, but one of the things that that you touched on in the very beginning of of our conversation is is driving efficiencies throughout, or, or helping to drive efficiencies throughout the procurement process. And I feel like when we were in, and we can call it the kind of quote unquote pandemic era of of government technology procurement, everything seemed much more efficient because it it had to be government needed to get these technologies on board so they could start leveraging them with immediate effect. Um, I mean, pick and choose a technology and insert it, and they needed it at the time. Do you think there's any lessons learned that are are being incorporated into policy now 
and for the future for strategic means versus kind of some of the reactive things we had to do during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, from my perspective, there's there's part of it that that may be pandemic related, certainly when it comes to remote work um, and things like that. But to me, I, I really feel like we're at this moment where there's sort of an unstoppable forward momentum in terms of government moving forward when it comes to tech adoption. And I think that traces back to like... Uh, posthealthcare.gov even with some of these little companies that came out of that in terms of, of the recognition that, hey, big government systems are often broken and we need to start being very proactive on, on how to tackle those. So I think I think a lot of the things that we're seeing now may have started prior to that, right? You've seen a ton of different innovations in how organizations procure. I think, you know, in the past, you know, five years there's been a lot of testing of different models when it comes to how to bring tech in effectively and my sense is that we're at some stage now where people are starting to coalesce around different different models of success for bringing tech in right diu has been you know doing a great job for a while it used to be you know as a test Right. And then there's sort of a broader recognition now that, yes, you need a sort of central hub of experts for this massive organization to say, how do you translate what's going on in the private sector into the problems that exist in the DOD? And then how do we move to actually scale that up now that we've seen you know, how that works? So, so from my perspective, there, there may be some pandemic related uh, pieces of progress, but I think a lot of it, there's this sort of rising tide that's been, been coming for a while uh, and I think is only going to continue to accelerate. No, so I'm, I, I'm I, to- I I totally agree with you. Yeah, I, I think, and and I I hadn't thought actually about the the catalyst being kind of post healthcare.gov. Um, I I didn't think the the pandemic kind of kicked that off. I feel like, and and to steal a a term that that one of my guests um said on an, on an episode here is it we're kind of on a renaissance we're in a renaissance era of kind of government technology and, and uh, procurement, and I think I I really agree with that. I think part of it too is we've seen that gap close between commercial technology and what the government is leveraging for for a myriad of ways too. We've seen governments become more innovative. I mean, you and I even b- before we started recording, we we I referenced um, uh, my conversation with Brian Kroger, and and we look at programs like Kessel Run, right, or what the Army Future Command is doing, and some of the other um, software factors happening in government. That level of innovation is not something you would have seen a decade ago, um, especially two decades ago. But really, the government is seeing that it's important and we need ways to, to incubate technologies and platforms that are going to be unique to government and really drive change. 100%. And I think there's there's always some level of stop and go in the sense that, right, on the private sector side, you'll have come, you know, Companies get really excited about one potential opportunity to work with government, and then it doesn't work out, and it you know swings the pendulum back another you know small amount. Similarly, on the government side, right, you may have some innovation hubs that get funded but to a significant level, don't have a lot of outputs. Congress or leadership doesn't like that, and and then starts restricting other things, right? And so there's always some level of, of sort of back and forth, but but I think there's pretty significant forward momentum in terms of where we're going, and definitely seeing a lot. Every year in my conversations on the Hill, there's more and more people who are thinking about 
innovative tech within government and and getting more more sort of technical on issues that you know even a few years ago a lot of folks would just say oh this is not really a priority for us I want to build off this positivity because I think we've talked about some challenges, right, that, that government's had and even commercial vendors have had. But I'm curious to know, you, you obviously, you work with a lot of vendors, you work with governments. What's giving you hope right now in this space that government technology is moving in the right direction for the next five, 10 years? I think there's, there's just a broader level of energy and it's starting to seep down into the more structured organizations from the bureaucracy, if that makes sense. So where yeah, five, 10 years ago, right, you might have, you know, the digital service and 18F and, and some sort of pockets of folks where you say, okay, th- these are the people that do quote unquote innovation or that, that think about tech and it's not relevant to anyone else. I think we're, what's really driving sort of the bigger changes over the coming years is as that trickles down, right? And this, you know, this is true on the decode side too, even from our experience, right, where we went, from working pretty closely with a lot of innovation hubs to now we've got sort of major PEOs pulling us in and saying, hey, how do I fundamentally change the way that my entire organization runs so that I can incorporate some of these best practices, bring tech in from the get-go so I'm not you know, tacking on an innovation quote-unquote project uh, at the end of having built my major system for X, Y, and Z and instead you know, fundamentally making sure I'm incorporating private sector best practices for software development or software purchasing um, from day one. So I think that's that's sort of the stage that we're at when it comes to, I think, the, the fundamental tides that'll basically bring us from a, yes, there are pockets of innovation to the government as a whole is starting to move forward with a lot of these major systems and being more, more tech forward and more tech savvy. One of the things I've seen uh, within government in particular is you tend to get leaders that are in perhaps CIO roles or just heads of, of technology groups that don't necessarily have technology backgrounds. But I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think to some extent, to, to kind of double click on what you just mentioned, th- those levels of innovation don't have to be completely focused on technology or don't always, or don't always even have to include technology whatsoever because culture is such a big piece of kind of what that changing landscape is is really um, moving towards. So do you think that there's a value to having these type of people in leadership roles? Or do you think there, there becomes a disconnect? And this is more in the vein of uh, the emerging technology companies, because a lot of times these emerging technologies that government has to understand can be complex, right? And I think even if you're a technologist, sometimes they're, they're advanced beyond even what you know. So do you think that this can help government? Do you think it hinders government? Or do you think it, it, it really happens at a lower level than just at the leadership position? I think it's critically important to have people in leadership positions who, even if they don't necessarily have a, a technical uh, background or, or understanding of, of specific tech areas um, have an interest in driving that type of innovation and in doing so provide top cover for people to try doing things differently. I think where where there tends to be sort of significant um, lack of, of forward progress is when somebody at a 
you know, maybe more junior or more technical level says, hey, I'd love to do this. But it involves changing the standard way of doing business. And the culture of the organization is, hey, we don't do anything different because different is risky. And so in organizations where you have a leader who is willing to take on not necessarily the, hey, like you don't need to be an expert on AI or, or on sort of modern software platforms or anything like that, but to give the top cover to your team to say, hey, here's how we're going to start thinking about risks. If you want to try doing something differently, here's a, you know, a framework for doing so, uh, because there's there's always a you know, rightful risk aversion in government because we have a lot of critically important things we do that we don't want to break. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's going to be much more risky to spend $100 million doing the same old thing with the same old contractor than it is to run a couple small cheap tech pilots to see if, if something could radically transform the way the way we do things or just bring us up to the sort of modern modern commercial standards. So so I think there's a, there's a big role that leadership has to play in terms of creating a culture um, and creating a framework that enables that progress. Uh, I don't think that necessarily means they need to be right uh, tech savvy themselves. Uh, I, I think that's not necessarily realistic to expect, and, and you know they've got other <laughs> other skills and priorities they need. I think that's true in the private sector as well. I, I think anybody who who engages with the public sector understands the the risk aversion mentality that that the the organizations have and and rightfully so in in some ways right i mean they're dealing with taxpayer money they're trying to to avoid any type of controversial situations um but i think that level of risk aversion isn't always um necessary very similar to our conversation about how you don't always need fed ramp requirements in a in a procurement unless you kind of look at the specificity of data right I think same can be said around programs when you look at risk aversion and can we avoid can we actually take some risks and and see what we can do to be more innovative and drive more efficiencies and I'm curious to know because you've worked with a lot of groups do you see a common thread or a common factor within organizations culturally that tend to drive more efficiencies and get away from just the focus on risk aversion and 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 kind of focus more on the mission outcome, best ways to get there and try to be more innovative. Are there things that you see that are common across organizations like this, common traits? I do think for for a ton of them, the tone is set at the top. Um, I, I think consistently where, we, where I've seen organizations over time sustain a level of, um, I hate to use the term innovation, right? But sustain a level of doing things differently and adopting technology and doing so in a smart way the most consistent thread across all of them is having leadership that is supportive of that highlights that defends it uh, because it's right. There, there's always the, the sort of overflight pressure too, right? Um, if you do something innovative, people are going to come start checking under the hood and saying, well, Hey, did something go wrong here? Okay. Let's cancel the whole project. Or why are we doing this? We used to do it this way. And so, Having a level of support and engagement from the top, uh, I think, is is uh, is definitely the sort of most important part for setting the stage for all that. There's a ton more that goes into it from a you know how do you actually do this in a way that's smart um, and in a way that gets the outcomes you want to do. But but the that does tend to be a pretty consistent thread across is is the the leadership side. 
Nate, I appreciate you jumping on and kind of allowing us to to jump in your brain a little bit and learn a little bit more about what's happening, especially from a policy perspective. But before I let you go, any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners today? Yeah, I, mean, I think, it, I think it's, uh, it continues to be a very exciting time uh, to be in the, the government innovation space, right? I feel like, you know, I've, I've been in government for a while, but, but in the tech and government space for five years, and even just in these five years, right, things have changed dramatically. Uh, and it's just really exciting to see what the next five years will bring. I think the policy side's a little bit less exciting this year. We've got some risky dynamics. Certainly, if you're a, a government contractor, uh, don't forget to plan for the the likelihood of a government shutdown at the end of the fiscal year for some period of time. Uh, so I always, always make sure to sneak that in as a final thought for folks <laughs> I'm talking to. But, um, but yeah, I think it's an exciting time. Uh, I think there's there's plenty of positive changes um, that we're going to see over the next couple of years as, as we see more sort of institutional shift towards um towards the government being a better better buyer of tech. Well, I started the show by talking about how impressed I am with, with your organization. Um, top down, I think you guys are doing a great job and I want to end it that way too. I, I'm really impressed with the work you're doing. I think it's very necessary. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm glad we had this conversation. And I think there's a lot of companies out there that can really um, can really leverage the information that, that you're kind of propagating out there to help, help connect um, the commercial side and the government side, and ultimately to drive value to uh, to the constituency, which is the mission of government. So, um, Nate, really appreciate the time today and for you uh, jumping on. Thanks so much, Brian. Really appreciate it. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittastraby. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.